You're listening to Headway, a podcast to inspire the next generation of change makers. My name is Imogen Aylwin, and I'm sitting down with social entrepreneurs, business leaders, and big dreamers to hear about how they're creating impact in our fast evolving world. This week, I'm delighted to welcome Sophie Tranchell, who for the past 21 years has been the CEO of Divine Chocolate, an innovative fair trade chocolate company that is co-owned by a Cocoa Farmers Cooperative in Ghana. A number of prestigious awards have been awarded to Sophie, including an MBE for her services to the food industry and Schwab's Social Entrepreneur of the Year in 2016. So welcome to the podcast, Sophie. It's really lovely to have you joining us here today. Lovely to be here and having a chance to talk to you. Well, so perhaps you can start by telling us a little more about Divine Sophie and what it is that it stands for. So Divine is a fair trade chocolate company. And what's special about it is that the cooperative of cocoa farmers in Ghana that supplied the cocoa also owns shares in the company. It was established back in 1998 to address the inequity in the chocolate supply chain where the shareholders of big chocolate companies that deliver iconic brands that we all know were doing very well, but cocoa farmers were earning less than their fathers and mothers uh, a generation earlier. It must have been absolutely fascinating to try and develop a fair and steady income stream with and for those farmers, though, in in response to that. It's been enormously inspiring to be part of it, and it's been a privilege to have the opportunity to actually work with farmers who had already organised themselves to try and get a, be- a bigger share of, of the value that they're helping to create. And, and Sophie, when was it that Coopa Coco as a cooperative was established then? So Coopa Coco was uh, established back in 1993. Um, and that w- the opportunity was because the cocoa market in Ghana was um, liberalised, that instead of there just being uh, the government agents working buying cocoa from farmers, there was an opportunity to set up a farmers cooperative that was run by farmers for farmers. And so Quapa Cocoa, which means good cocoa farmer, was established by a charismatic uh, farmer who saw that opportunity. And he worked um, with uh, sort of village leaders in 22 villages and established Quapa Cocoa as a cooperative that was going to be run for and by its members. Gosh, that's amazing. And, and it was 22 villages when it started. And how many are you at now? So Quapa Cocoa now has uh, over 100,000 members in 12 hundred villages across the cocoa growing belt in Ghana. Gosh, what an amazing reach. It's a massive reach and it's a phenomenal achievement because actually if you think about how difficult it is to run a democratic organization, even in Britain, where you get in order to run an organization that's democratic, you need people to join in and you need them to participate and you need them to, you know, be up up to date with the information that's available and make decisions about that information. Well, in Ghana, you're talking about people who are living in remote and rural areas who have very low levels of literacy and don't have access to a computer. And so how do you get them to join in? So it is a real phenomenal achievement to have managed to get all of those people to um, be part of something that is so widely distributed. That's fascinating. How was it that you came to working at Divine then, Sophie? Well, in in some ways, uh, I've always been passionate about social justice. I was an anti-apartheid campaigner um, in the 80s. And I was was the chair of the organisation that did anti-apartheid in London. So we were people who um, campaigned, uh, got people to boycott products that were from South Africa as a way of saying we we didn't approve the apartheid regime. 
And we, uh, one of the last things that we were doing was that we did a demonstration outside Sainsbury's headquarters. And I was sort of responsible for making sure the demonstration was an orderly demonstration. And the guard came out to me and he said to me, can I come inside the headquarters? And I was sort of thinking, oh, goodness gracious, you know, <laughs> what, what trouble are we in now? And um, when I got in there, it was that the wine buyer had requested to see us because by then um, Mandela was free. He was about to get elected as, as president. And the wine buyer said to me, well, how would you like us to trade with a, a post-apartheid South Africa? And I'd never really thought about that question. And so when I saw the advert for Divine, which was a tiny little advert in The Guardian, I actually thought that that was a real opportunity to convert the passion and commitment of those people who had boycotted the products of apartheid to actually convert that into positive purchasing, to use the power in your purse and your pockets to create the world the way you'd like it to be. And so that's what I saw as an opportunity was that if I worked for a company like Divine, then I would be able to build on that, that commitment and that passion to make the world a better place. And so actually how I ended up getting the job was there was a little tiny advert in The, in the Guardian and um, it was recruiting a team of people. And so I did the application and then I got shortlisted and they gave me a date for the interview and I took the day off. And then I got a phone call from them where they said to me, uh, actually, they'd seen enough people and I didn't need to come. And so my reaction to that phone call was, Actually, I've taken the day off and it sounds really interesting. So I think I'm going to come anyway. <laughs> so never take no for an answer. <laughs> I love your persistence there, Sophie. That's a brilliant story. <laughs> Can you tell us a little more about the first meeting that you had with the farmers from the cooperative in Ghana? Well, so what, what happened was I had been, um, when I got the job, I was running a, a film distribution company. And so I had to give three months notice. So I was working out my notice. And um, the people from Divine said, would I come to the farmer's AGM, even though I wasn't yet working there? And that the AGM was in Ghana. And so I flew to Accra and then I got the, um, did the, the long road journey up to Kumasi. And I found myself in a, in, in, a build, in a room with about 500 cocoa farmers. And there was women and men there because they'd been committed to women's participation from the beginning. And they'd got some actors to come to illustrate why it was important to have a membership card if you were going to be a member of the cooperative. And I got to speak to these farmers and it was incredible to think that I was going to have the opportunity to actually work with these farmers to help them build their chocolate company. But I think the other thing that was amazing about talking to them was despite the fact that they spend all of their time um, growing cocoa and working hard in, in, in incredibly you know, hot and difficult conditions, uh, none of the people I'd met had ever tasted chocolate. So they had no, uh, no sense of where the cocoa was going or no sense of why it had to be a certain quality. And so that was quite astonishing to me that we managed to get to the point that, that there were these people. We, we enjoy chocolate every day, quite a lot of us. <laughs> and there were these people who did all that hard work and they'd never ever tasted it. So what um, I decided to do was um, I, I was invited each year to attend the Farmers Annual General Meeting so that I could report to them about how Divine Fair Chocolate Company was doing. And what I decided to do was bring chocolate with me so that at least the people who attended the meeting would have the chance to taste the chocolate. Uh, and that was great fun because you were actually seeing people taste chocolate for the first time. And it was um, a, a, an amazing taste to them and they were really proud of it. But it was also uh, challenging logistically because the ambient temperature there is about 30 degrees and obviously chocolate melts at about 22 degrees. So as the 
AGM got bigger and we were bringing pallets of chocolate to the AGM, we were really having to work hard to keep it cool enough for it to be solid at the point when the farmers actually got to taste it. Yeah, I can imagine that must have been a logistical challenge for you all. Um, So Sophie, you mentioned earlier that Divine is a fair trade chocolate company and many of us will have seen the logo on the shelves around the UK. But what does it really mean for a company to be fair trade? Can you give us a quick overview of that? So fair trade is a product certification rather than a company certification. And what it means for the company is that when we're buying ingredients, we need to buy those ingredients from fair trade certified farmers organisations. And we have to pay a fair trade price and a fair trade premium for that ingredients. So in cocoa, that means, you know, currently the situation is that you pay $2,400 a tonne for the cocoa. Or if the world market price is higher than that, you pay the world market price. And then on top of that, you pay a social premium, which is $240 a tonne. So the farmers get um, get that extra money, and uh, the important one of the important principles of fair trade is that the farmers decide democratically how they spend that money. I think what's also good about fair trade is that it is uh, an independent um, audit of that supply chain. So when you, as a chocolate lover, see the fair trade mark on on a bar of chocolate, you can be confident that the claims we're making, the things I'm saying to you now, are true. Because uh, Fairtrade audits our supply chain. We have to make quarterly declarations and then they come and check our books on an annual basis. And they also do the same thing to our manufacturers to check that they're buying from where they're saying they're buying and that they're paying the right amount of money for it. And then they also go and um, audit the farmers to see that that money has really arrived, that, it has, that nobody's taken it on the way. And that the farmers are making democratic decisions, which involve everybody about how they're going to spend that money, but also that they are implementing those decisions in a in a timely way. So that means that you can have real confidence as a consumer that when you buy a product with a fair trade mark, that the farmers really are getting a benefit from your purchase of that product. Yeah, I think it's great for consumers to have that confidence and to be assured of the standards that the fair trade represents when they're buying back in the UK. You mentioned earlier the social premium and how the farmers decide democratically how to spend that money. Um, I wonder if you can give us a few examples of the kind of projects that that money has gone on to fund. So over the years, that's changed. So when I first started working with Quapacoco, um, they were sinking a lot of water wells. And that's because obviously water is very important in terms of health and hygiene. And it's particularly important in Ghana because um, there are other big um industry is gold mining, which has a tendency to pollute the water table. So they were sinking water wells. Um, They've also built quite a few schools. They don't then run the schools. They then hand them over to appropriate organisations with memorandums of understanding so that cocoa farmers' children can get to go to those schools. They've um, done some very interesting things in terms of uh, improving medical uh, facilities by offering roving medical clinics that the say medical students go out into the villages and actually offer health checks to people and then refer them to hospitals if there's something wrong with them. They've recently extended that to be a telemedicine system so that you can actually phone into the centre, into Kumasi, and try and get some sort of support and diagnosis for your medical medical condition. Um, But they've also done things, I mean, every year they paid a cash bonus to all the farmers based on the volume of cocoa they deliver. And they've um, supported 
um, agricultural training so that farmers can actually uh, manage to grow more cocoa by using um, good techniques. Um, and so they've used them on all those, all those sorts of things. Well, it sounds like a real broad set of purposes that they've put the money towards, which is which is great to hear. You were previously discussing how Co-op Coco runs on democratic governance. And I'd quickly like to touch on the importance of power sharing and diverse decision making in organisations. And I've heard you quote the phrase before, nothing about us without us. And I wonder if you can just delve into that topic a little more. Yes. For full disclosure, I heard that um, sentence, so nothing about us without us, from a wonderful woman campaigner from um, East Africa. But I think that it feels as if we are finally beginning to make progress in that people in power are realising that diversity leads to better decisions and to stronger businesses that are fit for the future. Uh, So what nothing about us without us means is that for all the people who have been excluded from the decision-making in power is don't make decisions on our behalf talk with us, include us, and then you will be making better decisions and things that uh, have resilience. And I think it's what Divine has always been about, because obviously some of the excluded people <laughs> who have always been excluded are agricultural uh, people in developing countries. And so in the Divine model, the farmers are protagonists. They are um, treated as entrepreneurs, as owners of the company, and ultimately they're my boss. And so they've been part of all of the decision making that's happened over the years. Yeah, I hear that you report to what? What is it? Eighty-five thousand bosses now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that was that. That that is the case. But it's it, it's been um, an absolute uh, privilege to have the opportunity to work for those farmers and to sort of demonstrate to the world that you can do business differently uh, with farmers at the heart of it and and do well. Absolutely. I think that's definitely a shift we're moving towards more and more um, at the minute, especially with the the rise of B corporations and the like. I think that's a a direction we're heading in, which is, I think, relieving for most of us. Um, It's well documented that economically empowered women are some of development's best allies. And of course, economic development is really important for everyone. But The evidence suggests that when a woman has cash in her hand, she spends that money on health and education of her children, which generally tends to go a long way to helping them get out of poverty in the future. You work a lot with female farmers to empower them, to educate. Can you tell us a little more about how Divine has been working in that way? Well, really, it started with Coco back in 1993. So when they established their cooperative, they established it. Uh, with the idea that that they wanted to empower women. And so they started with quotas, and those quotas were even at a village level. So if you were electing your committee in your village and there were going to be seven members of the executive, then three of them had to be women. And when you sent the representatives to the AGM, the the event that I was describing before, then you had two delegates so that one of them had to be a woman. And that's actually a very powerful thing to do in a in an agricultural and African organization because it means that you have to find women to join in in your organizations and you need to give them the opportunity to speak for themselves and that has been very effective and Quapa has 35% of its um, membership is is now women which over indexes for the amount of women who own cocoa farms in Ghana. Um, what we did do with Quapa though in um, 
at their 21st birthday was we did a survey with them to why it was the case that they were getting a really good level of women's membership, but women weren't actually appearing throughout the organisation. They they weren't equally appearing through the organisation. And what were the barriers to their participation? And what we found then was that one of the barriers was uh, illiteracy. So there's only um, 15% of women were literate. And that's a bit to do with the age of cocoa farmers. So the average age of a cocoa farmer in Ghana is, is 50. And so they're people who would have been being educated in the 70s. Um, and so that their literacy level is very low. And, and that makes it very challenging to participate in a democratic organisation and for people to trust you and to elect you to represent them. And so what we did was we supported Quapa to do some intensive um, education, uh, literacy and numeracy lessons. And so Quapa Coco worked with the Department for Non-Formal Education in Ghana and they developed some special curriculum. And they did two hours, three times a week during the off season for, cocoa, for women cocoa farmers. Men could come too, but it was particularly targeted at women and they made sure that it was done in places and at times where women could attend it. And that was uh, really great to see the women improve their literacy and improve their confidence. Uh, it's interesting. I think because we're literate so early in our lives, it's difficult for us to imagine what it would be like not to be able to read and how disempowering it is. So if you can't read, you don't know where the bus is going. Or if you can't read, would you be prepared to take medicine from a packet that you didn't know what it said? And so that sort of sense of literacy is a, a really enormously empowering thing. And so that's something that uh, Divine has supported over the last few years to enable women to fully join in the organisation. But I think the other thing that we have done with Quapacoco is make sure that women have access to any training that's available, to any credit and to any of the inputs. Because actually um, what you're finding is that they're not getting the same access that men are getting. And so we're making sure that they are. And one of the ways to do that is to make sure that when you support any interventions you the data that you look at afterwards is disaggregated by gender so that you can see if women are or aren't getting the benefits of that intervention and if they aren't then next time you can reconceive of how you deliver that intervention to make sure that women can get benefit yeah I think that's really important as well to be having those kind of conversations with the cooperative to delve in deeper and to find out why women are missing out on opportunities along the way so that's fascinating to hear something I came across in my research into the cocoa industry is the slightly darker side of the chocolate industry and one that I'm not quite sure how many people back in the UK when you're picking up your favorite chocolate bar in the supermarket back home are kind of aware of that is the issue of child labor which is particularly prevalent in West Africa with around 2.1 million children working in the industry I know Co-op Coco is tackling the challenges of inappropriate labour practices with farmers, mainly through discussion and education. But how is it that the other chocolate giants within the cocoa industry can tackle this issue on a larger scale? Because I don't feel conversation will quite cut it when it comes to the big chocolate corporations. Well, I think the most important thing is to pay more for the cocoa. So I don't think that um, bad labour practices happen because there is a, a you know a, a huge amount of um, wicked people who want to do bad things. I think it's because they're in very difficult circumstances. And so I think that if you pay more for the cocoa, then things should improve. Um, but I also think that you 
it would be good that big corporations supported farmers' organisations like Copper Cocoa to develop their own schemes so that they are sustainable schemes. And that is both an education and an awareness element, but also a monitoring and a mitigation process. So you need to have the conversation to say to farmers not to have their, their, their children on their farms and not to get them to use sharp knives and to carry things that are too heavy and to get covered with pesticides. And you need them to send their children to school. But you need them to understand why. So that is an important process. But you also then do need to have some sort of checks to make sure that that isn't happening. And, that, and all these things cost money. So education programs cost money. You need people to go out and talk to farmers. You need to produce um, posters and radio programs that are a very effective way of, of having this conversation. Uh, and those things cost money. And so I do think that big corporations should support farmers' organisations to do those sorts of interventions. But I also think that big corporations are in an interesting position to work with governments in those countries to make sure that there are enough schools for children to go to. So if you go into the really remote areas in Ghana where the cocoa farming is happening, quite often there isn't enough schools uh, in, in the right location for children to be able to go to school. But I think that the, uh, the big companies can also work with the governments in those countries to make sure that there are appropriate agencies to support farmers when an intervention needs to be made. So if an organisation like Quapacoco finds that there are um, bad practices and that they're even in the vicinity, so maybe not among their members, then they need to be able to work with an effective agency to uh, help those children get into a better, better circumstances. Mm, I, I mean, it's generally about poverty alleviation overall, isn't it? It's just I wondered whether it was more about legislation for the big, bigger companies to enforce these rules. Uh, but maybe that's not the case. Maybe it's, it works better on a smaller scale. Well, Quapacoco isn't small scale. With 100,000 members in 1,200 villages, um, they are turning over 60 to 70,000 tonnes of cocoa. That's nearly 10% of Ghana's output. Wow. Uh, so, and it's more than, you know, it's nearly 2% of the world's cocoa. And so they're not working on a small scale. And clearly, if big companies supported farmers' organisations, then there would be more farmers' organisations. And I think the beauty of uh, helping build strong farmers' organisations is that they'll be there in the future. So even if the agenda of the companies change and their priorities change and what they fund change, farmers' organisation will be there on the ground and it will continue to do the good practices that it has done. And when once you've had a conversation about why you should send your children to school, everybody understands that. And so you tend to not go backwards afterwards. That's understandable, absolutely. Um, Sophie, I'd like to quickly touch on the idea of purpose and profit, if we can. Um, and it seems to me that individuals and companies alike believe that you can only really achieve one or the other and not both simultaneously. Divine over the years has been a very successful company and has also been delivering great social value through that time. So I wonder if you can discuss really how you've managed to balance both of those aspects within Divine. Divine was established to improve the livelihoods of cocoa farmers in West Africa by establishing a dynamic branded chocolate marketing company and proving that you could do business differently with farmers at the heart. So it's actually you know, our reason to be. It's what makes us different. It's why lots of people have, uh, they, people have been engaged and uh, inspired by the story and they've gone out of their way 
to support us in whatever way it is. So whether they're a journalist and they've written up the story or they're a celebrity and they've done it on their social media or they're a shop and they put it on their shelf. Uh, they've gone out of their way to support us. And so we've actually built it into the business model. Um, our story, you know, and the farmers at the heart of it is, is our unique selling point. And in a way, it has built a customer loyalty that money couldn't buy because it is it is a genuine difference from other chocolate companies. And, and in a way, there are quite a lot of chocolate companies and most of them, you know, do really fabulous tasting chocolate, but they don't have a story like Divine. Yeah, the story is so important to it. I think as a consumer, you then feel connected with the farmers at the other end of it, and that makes you much more loyal to the product, which has obviously been working really well for Divine. Uh, One thing I'm interested on touching on is, are you able to make a product that people ethically are more likely to buy, but don't necessarily have to pay more for it? So there's some kind of equity in the supply chain, perhaps, that leads to that being more equal. I think it's a very interesting question, and it's something that we as people who buy things all the time in Britain have very little idea of who gets what from the money we pay. So, you know, when you buy something in a supermarket and you pay two pounds for it, you've no idea who gets that two pounds. It doesn't sort, you don't really have time to think about it. And so there is a sense of what we've been trying to do is make that a more open conversation about who gets what when you bet when, when a chocolate lover buys a bar of chocolate and so obviously the first 20 percent goes in VAT so the government gets it the UK government gets it Um, the next bit which is the most substantial bit goes to the retailer and so I think there is a question about whether retailer margins um, could be um, smaller I think that's 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 an interesting conversation to have whether they're getting a disproportionate share of value or whether they're getting a fair share of the value but as your question suggested um, I think there is also an issue about how you choose to, you know, how the com- chocolate company chooses to spend its money. So obviously, uh, the big chocolate companies spend a huge amount of money on advertising, so paid for advertising, where if we can build a loyalty through the stories that we tell and through people telling each other the stories, then perhaps we can use yes, the money on advertising and more money in paying farmers. And then ultimately, um, you know, in the big chocolate companies, these are companies that are traditional companies that are about um, profit maximization and shareholder value. That means that they maximize profit, not for the farmers and not for us as chocolate lovers, but for people who own shares in the company. So that if you take, say, Cadbury's to Kraft back in 2010, Kraft billion pounds for that company. And that did very well for shareholders, but farmers were neither consulted nor did they get any value from that transaction. And so if farmers actually own shares in the company, like they do in Divine, then they don't only get money for the price, the fair trade price or the price they sell their cocoa for, but they also potentially get a share of, of the profits that are distributed in that company. And so I, I, I think that Divine is a more equitable way of doing business. And it is very distinct from many of the others because where you're seeing a proliferation of ethical claims, particularly in chocolate, I don't think there are any of them that are about farmers actually owning shares in the company, having a say in how the company is run, having seats on the board and having a share of the profit, which is what company ownership is all about. Mm. I think transparency is a really interesting kind of topic and something that I think helps products 
to gain more uh, more followers and more customers because if you really trust the product that you're buying and you can see that it's equitable and that people further down the line are also getting their fair share, that also really helps build brand loyalty, I think. And I feel like we're getting into a stage of, of more transparency, which is, which is really positive, I think. Yep. I think it's a good thing too. I think it is though about how much, um, I suppose, bandwidth we've all got for information. And so we do rely on uh, other people sometimes to make judgments about whether products are good or bad or whether companies are good or bad because we haven't always got the time to really look into them. And so it is enormously valuable that if you, um, you know, like Divine and you like the chocolate and you like the company um, and how it's organised, then one of the most valuable things you could do is introduce it to your friends and families and colleagues. Because it's actually quite interesting to think about. We did quite a lot of work of when do you, tr- when do you try a new chocolate? And so that when you're really looking forward to having a sort of a chocolate in the afternoon and you go to the shop, um, you tend to not risk your purchase on something you've not tried before. So the time when you actually, because you really want to make sure it satisfies you, you don't want to be disappointed. So actually, you're most likely to try a new product when it's introduced to you by a friend or colleague, by them giving it you as a gift, by them sharing something they're eating themselves or by you having it around their house. And so it's enormously useful to companies like Divine that if you think they're a great company, then do introduce it to your, to your friends and families by getting them to taste it, not just to hear the story. Because actually lots of people are quite sceptical and they hear the story and they go, yeah, that's a nice story. I bet it tastes horrid and I, I still don't think I'll try it. And so getting people to taste it by giving it as a gift or sharing your, your, your chocolate with them is a great way to co- convert more people to buy products from companies like them. So much like the deep red and muddy, bumpy roads in Ghana, Sophie, I'm sure that the path has not always been smooth for you at Divine or for the company as a whole. Um, And I'm sure it's had its fair share of hiccups along the way. What have been some of the biggest challenges that you faced as the managing director and CEO for the company for 21 years? In terms of sort of a shock challenge, the financial crisis in 2008 was horrifying because um, we manufactured the chocolate. The chocolate is manufactured in Germany, and so we are buying it in euros, and then we're selling it in pounds. And that when um, in the financial crisis, the pound was devalued by about 25%, and it meant that over that Christmas at the end of 2008, we came back in 2009, and we had basically lost the margin on the chocolate because that was how much more the chocolate, the cost, the cost of goods was. And we couldn't get a price rise through particularly the supermarkets because we were a small company and they were resisting it. And it made it incredibly difficult to run the company. And in a way, that was repeated again with the referendum because the referendum had the same impact in terms of devaluing the value of the pound against the euro. But we had learned our lessons from the financial crisis. So we had started to contract forward uh, currency, which meant that then we had some time to work out what we were going to do next. So, in fact, we did better out of that change because we'd learned a lesson from the financial crisis. But it was a really, really difficult time. Yeah, that sounds like such a challenging period. But I suppose I'm glad at least that there were some lessons that were learned from 2008, which helped you brace a little for the impact of, of Brexit. 
so we're coming roughly to the end of the podcast now, Sophie. So I just have a few more questions for you. If you could leave the listeners with a message or idea about how they can contribute to positive change in the chocolate industry, what would that be? I think it's still enormously valuable to write to companies yourself and actually say to them what you expect of them. So if you're a really committed person, then writing to companies like Nestle and say that you're very disappointed that they've stopped um, buying fair trade cocoa, I think is very important because otherwise they don't know that people care. But I think, as I've already said um, in our conversation, that it's hugely valuable you introducing chocolate to your to your friends and colleagues and getting your workplace canteen or vending machine to stock our chocolate. So any of those little things actually make a big difference to a company, particularly a smaller company like Divine. Mm, yeah, I'm sure word of mouth can can really work wonders for companies. So just as our final question today, uh, before finishing up, is there anything that's inspiring you particularly at the moment, a book, a podcast, an author, anything that's captivating your attention? Actually, one of the things that's inspiring me at the moment is the great young women social entrepreneurs. I think there is a real growing amount of them in different sectors. I, I love Miss, Miss Macaroon, so Rose, Rosie Grinley, who makes the most delicious uh, macaroons in Birmingham, where they're employing, uh, they're training young people and employing them. I think that Sophie Slater and Sarah Beckett, who are running Birdsong, which is a women's clothing brand, which is linking women in Britain who are making it with the women who are using the clothes. And then I think the person who's probably most inspiring me is um, Chrissy Wrestling, which in this day when we're looking at how we can recycle and reuse materials, she's the ultimate reuser of materials where she has reclaimed products that are going into landfill and she's creating luxury lifestyle products with them. Her best, I mean, the, the story that inspired me was the one about um, fire brigade hoses. So the, the hose gets put into landfill. And it never, ever um, rots because it's made of something that's so resilient. So it can be a hose in a, in a fire. And she's taken that material and she's made the most fabulous handbags. Um, and so do, do go on to her website, which is Elvis and Cressy, um, and see all the beautiful products that she's making out of products that would have, out of materials that would have gone to landfill. I'm very inspired by the, the, the new uh, generation of women social entrepreneurs who are really making the world the way we'd like it to be. Mm, there's really some great ingenuity going on out there, which is super inspiring. So I'll be sure to check out the women you just mentioned. So a big thank you to our listeners for joining into this week's episode. And thank you so much, Sophie, for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you and to hear the stories of the fair trade movement and your work with Divine within that space. Thank you very much, Imogen. It was a pleasure. I'll be sure to put the links to the companies you just mentioned and Divine's social media links in the notes for the show. So for now, it's goodbye. And we'll be back in two weeks to welcome our next guest and hear how they're creating waves in their community. 